0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here today in person and online as we wind up this teaching series on the book of Jonah by looking at chapter 4, a chapter in which the relationship between Jonah and God arrives at a crucial moment with a question hanging in the air about where they'll go next together. You can look chapter 4 up on your phone or on page 1438 in the Bible under the chair in front of you if you wish, but be aware that some portions of this scripture passage will also appear on the screen as we go along. Also, just a reminder that in the chapter just before, chapter 3, Jonah arrives in Nineveh. He preaches the world's shortest sermon ever, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he says, but it's enough. Everyone in Nineveh, animals included, repent of their wicked, violent ways and do a spiritual 180 in their lives back to God. So with that in mind, let's get going. And let's start with a story. Back when our church still met on Main Street in the Old North End in a building which, of course, is now Rivercross Mission, there was this large meeting space called Raymond Hall just at the back of the worship center. And Raymond Hall was used for all sorts of gatherings, including the Hope Mission, the same ministry that now forms the core of what goes on at Rivercross Mission. And there was a long coat rack at one end of Raymond Hall, and for many years, there was a large sign propped up on that coat rack, a sign that said, Lives Under Construction. I have no idea where the sign came from, but like I said, it was there for a while. And I always thought that it was entirely appropriate that this sign kind of presided over the Hope mission because that's essentially what the mission is all about. It's a place where we come together as friends in the presence of Jesus, each of us with sins and shortcomings, each of us a work in progress, a life under construction. As we work together with God's help to build each other up by caring for those most basic needs that keep us alive and kicking, clothing, a hot meal, a hot cup of coffee, but more than just the basics too, human contact, friendship, encouragement, and most important of all, prayer, teaching, and worship. As we encourage each other, sinners all, to build good and solid from the ground up on Jesus Christ who is the cornerstone, the foundation stone of our lives. And what holds true for the mission holds true for each of us here today too. We are all works in progress, our lives constantly under construction in some way, perhaps especially in our relationship with God. Which brings us to Jonah in chapter four, a work in progress prophet if there ever was one. God still has a lot to do, and preferably with full safety gear on, as he puts his, all his divine skills into completing his workmanship in this rather hostile prophet's life. So here's why Jonah struggles so much. He knows who God is, and he knows God's story. But he has a sin problem going on, which constantly gets in the way of God. Let me explain. Chapter 1, verse 2. God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh, the hated capital city of the wicked Assyrian empire, to warn them about judgment to come if they don't change their ways. Nineveh lies in this direction, but Jonah takes off running, then hops on a Mediterranean cruise ship, heading in the complete opposite direction to get as far away from God as he can. Why? Well, first off, he's terrified, and for good reason. He's afraid that the brutal Ninevites are going to kill him. But there's more going on here, a lot more. Remember who Jonah is, a prophet. Prophets were people who spent time in God's company and meditated on the holy scriptures of God's people, and then out of their experience of God and their knowledge of how He works, they spoke for God to the people, calling them to account for abandoning God's ways, sin, then warning about judgment to come before ultimately promising a hopeful future if they repent, do a spiritual 180 and head back to obedient faith in God. All this to say that Jonah, even though his relationship with God obviously lacks a solid foundation, is still a prophet who's hung around God and the scriptures enough to know who God really is. And if we have any doubt about that, he shows us that he knows when he prays to the Lord in chapter 4, verse 2. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Sound familiar? Jonah knows the story. Think back to Exodus chapter 34, when Moses meets God on Mount Sinai to renew the covenant between God and his people. And as God passes by Moses, he announces with authority who he is. And how does God describe himself? Chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Jonah, the work-in-progress prophet, repeats almost word-for-word how God sees Himself, and in doing this, acknowledges who God really is. And for a God who looks like this, Gracious and merciful, compassionate instead of angry, and loving and forgiving without measure, judgment is always the last thing, the very last thing, never the first thing on his mind. That's why he sends prophets for crying out loud. And Jonah as a prophet knows this because out of love, God wants to warn people off from the disastrous direction their lives are going so that they'll turn around, repent before it's too late and head back to the welcome promise of life with God. Jonah knows God. He knows God's story, which means that there's one more thing that he knows too. Something that frames this whole book in which comes into focus in God's command to Jonah to take on a mission to the Ninevites. Let's go even further back than Exodus, to Genesis chapters 11 and 12, where God decides to start something brand new to bring about a new future for the human race in blessed relationship with him. And how does God make this happen? He chooses Abram, or Abraham as we usually call him, a pagan Gentile a Chaldean from the city-state of Ur, to become the first-ever Jew and the father of Israel. Jonah, as a prophet, knows this story, and he also knows the promises that flow from it. Because, you see, when God calls Abraham to leave everything behind and start fresh, he not only promises to make you, Abraham, into a great nation, Israel, chapter 12, verse 2 in Genesis, but in the next verse, verse 3, he also honors Abraham's Gentile Chaldean heritage by promising that all people on earth will be blessed through you. So right from Father Abraham on, the nation Israel's DNA contained a sense of evangelistic mission. They were never to keep their God of grace and mercy just to themselves. No, they were called to share God, to make Him known to the world so that everyone might experience God's blessing. Bottom line, Jonah knows who God is, and he knows God's story. He knows that he is called to serve a missionary God who wants all people everywhere without exception to experience his wide-open mercy and grace, including, by the way, each of us here today, too. So sure, like other prophets, Jonah might have assumed that God would call him to preach a message of repentance and promise to God's chosen people in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, but he knew full well that he might be called instead to speak for God to people outside the faith, like the crew on that Mediterranean cruise ship who cried out to many gods in the storm, or like the pagan Ninevites who worshipped an assortment of gods, none of whom looked anything like a God of grace and mercy." So it shouldn't have surprised Jonah that the God he was called to serve, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, for whom judgment is always, always the last thing on his mind, would long to lavish his grace on even wicked, violent people who've drifted far from him. But, as Pastor Rob has reminded us, Jonah has a sin problem going on. Now, you'd think that a prophet who's spent time with God and speaks for God might have have had a bit of God rub off on him. You'd think that God's heart would have become Jonah's heart by now, and for that matter, my heart or your heart. But Jonah resists this. His head knowledge of who God is and how he works hasn't yet reached down to warm his heart with compassion for people living outside of God's ways. And he's stuck there, refusing to change, refusing to allow God inside his life to put the building blocks in place and to frame him up to be a man after God's own heart. So, in contrast to God, who is slow to anger and abounding in love, Jonah has a heart abounding in hate in hatred that explodes in anger without warning towards anyone he thinks deserves it. The Ninevites for sure, and even God. So, but hey, you know, at least he's honest about it and comes clean with God in an angry outburst explaining that it's precisely because he knows who God is, yet totally disagrees with God's merciful ways, that he ran away in the first place because he wants no part of being part of God's grace and mercy story for life. And that's how chapter 4 actually begins. Not with a lovely, oh, I love you, God, prayer, but with an angry prayer, where Jonah basically shouts, I can't stand what you're doing, God. Eugene Peterson captures this sense of things bang on in the message. So let's read those verses together out loud now. They're on the screen and put some emotion into it, okay? Here we go. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. But you know... This angry outburst is actually a hopeful sign because it means that Jonah and God are still talking. Chapter 4, in fact, is one long conversation they share together, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So Jonah might be a work-in-progress prophet with a hateful heart whose relationship with God is obviously missing some foundation stones to say nothing of a frame and a roof, but at least he's still in touch with God. And if these lines of communication stay open, well then, the God who out of compassion will relent from sending calamity, the God who has heart for people who've lost their way, can still work to bring repentant change in Jonah's troubled, chaotic heart too. And that's what the book of Jonah is ultimately all about, in fact. Jonah might have a sin problem, but no matter Because the same missionary God, who out of compassion will go to extraordinary lengths to bring even the wicked Ninevites to repentant faith, will pursue Jonah with the same relentless determination. The God of grace and mercy isn't finished with Jonah yet, and will put in every effort to build Jonah up into an open-hearted faith in him. And we've seen this as Rob took us through the first three chapters in this book, Even as Jonah tries to run away from God, he keeps running into God instead, and every time the two of them meet up, God keeps at it, cementing in another foundation stone here, adding a timber over there, as he works patiently, lovingly, at turning this work-in-progress prophet into someone who doesn't just speak for God, but who actually looks like the God he's been called to serve. We see this in the storm in chapter 1, where God creates conditions in which Jonah is forced to be an accidental evangelist. And a sleepy could care less what at that, when he's confronted by a terrified cruise ship crew of various religious persuasions, each crying out to his God for rescue. Verse 5, and in that moment, Jonah offers a public testimony to who God really is. Verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. A testimony that becomes part of the story that leads these desperate men in verse 14 to cry out to the Lord in newfound faith and hope. And in that moment, even if Jonah wants nothing to do with him, God confirms that he still sees Jonah as a prophet and still plans to use him, and he does with that cruise ship crew, to bring God's blessing to all people on earth. The God of grace and mercy isn't finished with Jonah yet. We see this in chapter 2 in the big fish, not a whale, a fish, where God lets Jonah know just how much he cares for him by arranging a fish food rescue to save him from drowning. But there's more going on here. Chapter 2, verse 17. Jonah was in the fish's belly three days and nights. That's a long time, and it's on purpose God arranges this to provide Jonah with an I've got you just where I want you spiritual time out so that he can work at making changes in Jonah's heart. And sure enough, Jonah comes to his senses, well, at least for now, and he realizes that he can never abandon God because God will always find him and come to his rescue. And as Jonah works all this through, he repents, promising to live for God again, verse 4, Yes, I will look again toward your holy temple. And he falls to his knees in worship and commits himself again to being a prophet who will bring God's salvation rescue to the Ninevites. Verse 9, with a few editorial additions. I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed as a prophet. I will make good. I will say to the Ninevites, Salvation comes from the Lord. The God of grace and mercy isn't finished with Jonah yet. But let's just take a moment here and just pause and look again at at the movement in this story. Rob told us in sermon number one that we see a pattern of down, down, down. As Jonah's sin problem gets the best of him and he disobeys God. Down to Joppa down onto a ship, down into the hold of a ship, down deep into sleep, then down into the ocean deep in the belly of a fish, deep in the realm of the dead," Jonah says in chapter 2 verse 2. But where a relentless God of grace and mercy is at work, this surely can't go on forever. And that's in fact what we see here. Jonah might be on his way down to rock bottom, but God, in His goodness, is doing all He can to bring Jonah back up, up, up. It actually begins even before Jonah hits rock bottom, when God reaffirms Jonah's call to be a prophet to all people through His accidental cruise ship testimony. But it gathers momentum after Jesus, after Jonah's come-to-Jesus moment in the fish, when he repents and recommits to his call from God. At which point, the God who made the sea and the dry land causes the fish to upchuck, that is, vomit Jonah, from the ocean deep up onto a beach. And Jonah's upward mobility continues from there. First, God confirms Jonah's call to go to the Ninevites again, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then Jonah heads out in obedient faith, verse 3. Jonah obeyed the Lord and went to Nineveh. Things are looking up. Now, yes, some are on the journey. Jonah's sin problem gets the best of him again. But he still goes to Nineveh. And he still delivers God's word. He's definitely just kind of going through the motions only taking a one-day journey into a three-day city and offering just a one-sentence sermon that doesn't mention a merciful God, that doesn't offer a come-to-Jesus altar call and just talks about punishment to come, which, of course, is the kind of thing Jonah wants the Ninevites to experience. But he's at least obedient enough to still speak for God and say at least something to the Ninevites and the all-powerful God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, the God who has heart, compassion for people who've lost their way, takes care of the rest, and the Ninevites repent, do a spiritual 180, and head back to God. The God of grace and mercy isn't finished with Jonah yet, although honestly, by now you wonder why God should even bother. I mean, after all, even after God's fish food rescue, even after Jonah repents and recommits to his call, even after he shares God's word just enough to open the door for God to show grace and mercy to the Ninevites, even after all that evidence of God at work in and through Jonah's life, we run into hostile, angry, hateful Jonah again in chapter 4. The chapter, as we've already talked about, begins with an angry prayer, and things don't improve from there. Three times in verses 3, 8, and 9, Jonah puts into words the fact that he's just so consumed by anger at God for showing mercy to the Ninevites, but also it seems for pretty much everything else in life too, that he just wants to permanently pack it in. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I'm so angry. I wish... I were dead. And then Jonah leaves Nineveh and reading into the, into the scripture text here, he retreats to a viewpoint overlooking the city where he builds himself a poorly made shelter for, for shade, which proves, by the way, that Jonah isn't the kind of worker you'd want on your construction site. He's grumpy and he just can't do the job. And then Jonah sits there on his hilltop in that ramshackle shelter Watching in judgment, verse 5, Jonah waited to see what would happen to the city. He's waiting for them to fail. He's waiting for them to turn evil again so that God will wipe them out. But it's pretty clear from all that goes on in chapter 4, Jonah is waiting on God to, to see if God will change his mind and repent from his mercy And Jonah is ready to pass judgment if God doesn't. Jonah is a work-in-progress prophet who seems to want nothing more than to dismiss God from the construction site of his heart. But the God of grace and mercy isn't finished with Jonah yet. Remember, Jonah has gone up to a viewpoint where he can see out over the city. Now, he might have gone up there to pass judgment, But God meets him there and turns it into another I've got you just where where I want you moment to work on Jonah's heart some more. Two times in verses 5 and 9, God responds to Jonah's anger with a question to gently provoke Jonah, to get him thinking, to get him talking. And during their conversation together, God again shows Jonah just how much he cares for him. He rescues Jonah from his lousy construction skills on that shelter by providing a lush and leafy plant to give him better shade. But then God turns it into a teachable moment. He sends a worm to eat and kill the plant overnight, verse 7, which upsets angry Jonah, of course, so what else is new? And then God sends a scorching east wind, verse 8, to blow Jonah's flimsy shelter away, leaving him roasting in the hot sun and suffering for just a little while. And now that he's got Jonah's attention, God says, verses 10 and 11, at the end of the book, "'You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern?' for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. It's a teachable moment to force Jonah to get a grip and put things in perspective by experiencing in just a temporary, minor inconvenience way what it feels like to live outside of God's merciful care in order to bring Jonah up short and remind him that the God of wide-open grace and mercy, who is slow to anger and abounding in love, longs with all his heart for all people everywhere without exception to receive the promise of life with him. Even the Ninevites, lost and suffering in their wicked, violent ways, and even Jonah, lost and suffering with an angry heart filled with hate." And that's how the book ends, with God's teachable moment. We have no idea how Jonah, the work-in-progress prophet, will respond because we aren't told. Instead, we're just left with a question about where God and Jonah will go next in their relationship with each other, which I think gives us some spiritual space this morning to reflect on Jonah's story in our own lives. Look, the fact is, we are all, each and every one of us here today, we are all Jonah in one way or another. We are all works in progress, our lives very much under construction, and most especially in our relationship with God. So as we wind things up, here are three questions that I encourage us each to think about as we figure out, with God's help, how Jonah's story will end in our own lives. Here they are. Number one, do you really know God? who God is? Not with your head, but in your heart, do you? Jonah's story reminds us how important the answer to this question is because it'll determine the direction we go, either away from God or towards God. Question number two, what sin problem gets in the way of your relationship with God and with other people. Jonah's story reminds us that we need to be honest and come clean with God about this if we want to have a relationship with Him. Jonah actually manages to do this, and so can we. And question number three, in keeping with the missionary message of this book, will you let the God of grace and mercy into your work-in-progress life? not in a half-hearted, going-through-the-motions way, but all the way, so that he can build you up into a life-giving faith in him. How Jonah would answer those questions remains open-ended. But we do know this. The God of grace and mercy isn't finished with Jonah yet, and he isn't finished with you and with me. Let's pray together. God of grace and mercy, we just want to take a moment right now to to be honest with you and, and acknowledge that sometimes we really don't know you. We think we do, but our hearts betray us and we run away. And Lord, we also acknowledge that we have many sins and shortcomings in our lives that often get in the way of really having a relationship with you. Lord, we are each a work in progress, and you still have a lot of work to do in our hearts. And so we open ourselves to you today. We put aside the excuses. We remove the barriers. We stop settling for just going through the motions. And invite you to do the work that needs doing to bring us into a life-giving relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.